Hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable Brown Girl podcast. This show exists to provide representation for women of color in the environmental space, to highlight their stories, and to educate the masses about how to be more eco-friendly every day. From gardening to thrifting, minimalism to veganism, sustainable business owners to influencers, environmentalists to activists, we are all on a journey to taking better care of our bodies and our planet. I'm your host, Ariel Green. The youth are truly leading the climate discussion. From Fridays for Future that's led by Greta Thunberg to the Sunrise Movement, a youth-led political action organization focused on stopping climate change. It's no doubt that Gen Z is fully invested in taking action in the fight against climate change. As a tired millennial myself, it's truly inspiring to see such vigor in today's youth as they challenge politicians and corporations, holding them accountable for the harm that they've done to the planet. And in addition to that, Gen Z has also made great strides with bringing awareness to environmental and social injustices that have been tolerated for way too long. In this episode, we're chatting with a college student who is inspiring her generation to get involved in climate action. But before we get too deep into that, I want to remind you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy to do on any Apple device. Just search for Sustainable Brown Girl Podcast and be sure to follow if you aren't already. Then scroll down to the review area and I'm sure you want to leave a five-star review, so go ahead and do it. It really helps us with getting more people to discover the show. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and I will feature it in an upcoming episode. If you're not already, be sure to follow Sustainable Brown Girl on Instagram and use the hashtag Sustainable Brown Girl to be featured on the page. I love seeing what everyone's up to, their sustainable swaps, their outfit inspo. So I love sharing that on Instagram. Also, if you have a few dollars to spare, please consider becoming a Sustainable Brown Girl patron on Patreon. It really helps to keep the show going on a consistent basis, and you'll get access to some exclusive content. A link to the Patreon page is in the show notes. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Also, if you didn't know, we record the video from almost all of our podcast interviews. So if you want to see the full video versions, head over to the Sustainable Brown Girl YouTube channel and subscribe. Sometimes our guests will show something to the camera that you obviously can't see if you're just listening to the audio. And it's so much fun to be able to see all of these Sustainable Brown Girls live. A link to the video for this episode is in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Thursday to catch new episodes of the Sustainable Brown Girl podcast. Next week, we'll be chatting with Christine Platt, aka The Afro Minimalist. We're going to be talking about her book, The Afro Minimalist Guide to Living with Less, as well as how African American history has shaped Black people's habits around spending money, plus the process of letting go of things you no longer need. You're not going to want to miss this one. So come back next Thursday to hear that conversation. Now let's get into this episode. 
Today's featured sustainable brown girl is Anya Sastry, a climate activist, filmmaker, and student. She produced a documentary titled Frontliners that highlights environmental injustice from the perspective of the less privileged. Anya is the former National Outreach Director for the U.S. Youth Climate Strike and a contributor for the book United We Are Unstoppable, 60 Inspiring Young People Saving Our World by Akshat Rathi. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anya. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. So let's go way back to when Anya was just a little girl growing up. Tell us how you became interested in sustainability. The moment at which I really pinpoint my my early involvement in this movement was back in 2018. Um, I was 16 years old, and uh, in 2018, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, produced their influential 2018 report detailing that we only have like a certain number of years left to take concrete climate action. And at that time, that number was 12. And I remember seeing that on headlines everywhere, newspaper articles, um, news channels, on TV, this number, 12 years, was plastered everywhere. Um, and I think at that point, I truly realized that like the climate crisis and climate change is not just as simple as reduce, reuse, recycle. It's, it's an institutionalized crisis that stems from organizations and power structures that have existed for centuries at this point. And it's something that's going to take a global effort to overcome. And so at that point, I think other kids my age were also having that realization of people in older generations are not putting in effort into solving and combating this global crisis. Um, but this is our future. As citizens of this world, we have an obligation, a duty to, you know, respond and to combat that fight or to combat that crisis. And so um, at that point, a few of us, um, there's this, you know, activist community on social media, like Instagram. And a few of us started like communicating through Instagram DMs and messaging and trying to brainstorm what we could do. And at that point, um, it was like a handful of us. And we started talking about a national movement of strikes. Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of leads into the U.S. youth climate strike um, and the work that I did. Um, but yeah, that, that was my foundation with, you know, getting more involved in sustainability and, you know, overall thinking about how I can fight against the climate crisis was that 2018 IPCC report and the kind of jarring message that it sent in terms of how little time we have left to fight back. Right, exactly. So when you, you know, read that report, I'm assuming that, you know, obviously it scared you into wanting to take some type of action. You know, when I was growing up, I'm a few years older than you, I'm sure, but we didn't, we'd learned about, what was it called? Global warming back then, but it was kind of like, oh, it's not that serious. But now, you know, with younger people growing up, it's more of an immediate thing. It's much, it's in the media much more, mm -hmm. you know, so do you feel like as a young person growing up, you know, and working with other young people in the climate strike, it's like this is going to affect us like this lifetime, like we're still going to be young when, you know, the, the temperatures are rising and we can really see it. Oh, hundred percent. And I think 
for a lot of people, it's easy to not see it as current and immediate because right now what we're seeing um, are all these drastic effects happening to marginalized communities that a lot of us aren't a part of. And so it's easy to ignore it. But when you take an intersectional approach to sustainability, you see that there are you know, African-American communities, there are indigenous communities, there are Latinx communities across the United States, and then there are international communities that are experiencing firsthand currently the drastic effects of of this climate crisis um, with things like pollution and polluted waterways and public health crises and that kind of thing. Um, So it's, I'm definitely in tune to the fact, and I think a lot of other youth are as well that this is a current issue in the immediate future in like in the now and we can't waste any time with not taking action absolutely so tell me more about the youth climate strike what is it and what was your role as the national outreach director yeah so um like i said a group of us were brainstorming like what we could do to garner attention for the climate crisis And um, we thought of the idea of doing these coordinated strikes across the nation Mm -hmm. um, in every state, even in some U.S. territories where kids um, and anyone really across the nation would go on strike from probably their school, um, like their place of work, and just take a day to focus on the climate crisis and its issues and its dangers so that it could bring more general awareness to the broader population. And our our goal with that was to get, you know, media attention, to get national attention and draw attention to this issue. Um, so we spent a few months planning and um, reaching out and organizing grassroots groups within all of these states and territories and getting people plugged in on the ground in their communities to organize these strikes. And on March 15th, 2019, we had our first uh, uh, strike, U.S. strike, and it was amazing. I was uh, co-leading the strike in Chicago for Illinois. And I remember we had about we had hundreds of people out there. I would say wow. close to a thousand, maybe. Yeah. Um, just marching the streets of Chicago. And it was such a powerful moment where I felt like we were able to kind of regain control of the narrative mm-hmm. of the climate crisis and really share to the broader community how scared and frightened our generation is um, regarding this issue. Right. And yeah, it really took off from there, to be honest. Um, Once we got that national attention of kids leaving school and marching in the streets on that day, we were quickly, you know, planning the next strike. And that all kind of eventually led up to the international strike uh, in on September 20th. Um, And that, I think, was a monumental day because it was one of, if not the largest human gatherings in history, where we were able to coordinate with people across the globe to, you know, bring people out um, onto the streets all around the world advocating for climate action. I was in New York for that strike and there were hundreds of thousands of people. Um, And we had like millions of people in the U.S. striking. And it was just truly 
a grassroots powered movement from the beginning. And I think that's what adds so much power to it. And I'm someone who strongly believes in the power of the people Mm -hmm. and the fact that we as people have this inherent power that we have to utilize to achieve change. Um, And I think I really saw that in these strikes and then in the final international strike. Yes, that's so amazing that you were able to get so many people together across the world to, you know, have this strike. That's incredible. So what do you think was the response to the strike, like from the media, from people in power? How do you, how did they respond? I think from the media, um, they, they definitely, um, were focused on us. Mm-hmm. Um, they, we had a lot of press moments where um, news reporters, TV outlets wanted to get us, you know, in their studios and have us share their message. What's interesting with the people in power is that, you know, at the time, what I've noticed is that it's a lot of words and not a lot of actions. Oh, yeah. Right. When us youth, we were, you know, going to their congressional offices, we were trying to have conversations. Um, it was really easy for them to placate us with words of, we're going to try and like get this bill in here. We're, you know, with local politicians too, or we're going to make local changes to the community. Even as far as like Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, like we're going to do, we're trying as hard as we can. But what I've realized is that they, they make a lot of empty promises, but something about Gen Z is that we are, if you make us a promise, we're going to follow up with that time and time again. We're not just going to let you, you know, say these words and then do nothing about it. So what I really appreciate about my generation is that we are coming back time and time again, and we're not giving up the fight. This is a long-term fight and it's something that you have to be committed to. It has to be sustainable. It's not just a one and done um, because unfortunately, you know, the people that are in power aren't just going to listen to us after one try and implement all the changes that we need. It's something that we have to keep fighting for, keep going back in and talking to them about. Um, And so it's been like years long in the making. Um, You know, people are still doing hard, you know, local, regional, national work to this day. And, you know, hopefully we can get to a point where, we have these young people getting into positions of power eventually so that we can get that uh, change implemented into the actual structures of our system and our nation and our globe. Absolutely. And I totally agree with you about Gen Z, how you guys are so persistent. You know, when I was um, the the big thing when I was coming up, I, mean, I said coming up, but, you know, like one of the big like social um, activist things was Occupy Wall Street for me. And so, yeah. And so, you know, that was a big millennial led thing. And we stuck with that for a few years, but it just kind of fizzled out, you know, Mm -hmm. but I definitely see how much work Gen Z is putting into um, combating the the climate change issue and holding Mm -hmm. representatives and corporations responsible. And I can only imagine that it's just going to keep growing. So with that being said, what are some ways that you would suggest young people to get involved? I think the number one thing that I would suggest to anyone, um, especially young people, is to get plugged into grassroots movements. I mean, 
Whether you realize it or not, every local community has some kind of grassroots sustainable movement working to combat some local issue. Um, like I said, whether it's like pollution um, or public health, especially in uh, bigger American cities, um, there are marginalized communities who are doing incredibly hard work. And oftentimes their voices are silenced and forgotten and ignored because they because of their ethnicity, because of their background. So what I really suggest is people, you know, doing the work, doing the research, finding these groups. And what the important thing is not just inserting yourself into that group, into that organization, but rather, you know, reaching out to them, contacting them, asking to learn from them and asking them, what can I do to help you? What can I do to amplify your voice? What can I do to support you, to empower you in your fight to create change in your community? Um, because they have these fights that have been going on for decades now. Um, and they have their, their philosophies and their structures of, you know, grassroots movements that I think we have to honor. Um, so that's the main thing that I would suggest is getting plugged into those organizations and really seeing how you can help um, and support their fight. Yes, those are great tips. Um, another way that I've seen you, you know, be a climate activist is through your documentary, Frontliners. So tell mm -hmm. us more about that. Frontliners was born out of a fellowship um, that I received through my high school. Um, and I, I'm a very creative person. I love, you know, media work of all kinds. I love photography. I love videography. I also knew that I wanted to be able to use my positions and, you know, my um, space in the climate movement to help spread the message of other people and these marginalized groups that are oftentimes ignored or silenced. Through this fellowship that I received through my high school, I was thinking, how can I combine both my creative, you know, passions with my um, with climate action and with my desire to help out these communities? Um, and that's where Frontliners, Frontliners came to be. And Frontliners is a documentary um, that explores environmental injustice and cases of environmental injustice. Um, so it's a two part documentary. And the first part, um, we we go to uh, northern Minnesota, where we uh, sit down and talk with indigenous grassroots activists um, in northern Minnesota from the Ojibwe tribe and who have been in this decades long fight against the Line 3 pipeline. And the Line 3 pipeline is a pipeline that would absolutely tear apart Minnesota's waterways. And this indigenous tribe that's their that's their lifeline mm -hmm. you know they for forever they've worked with the waterways they've worked with the the ecosystem that inhabits northern minnesota and this tar sands oil pipeline threatens to destroy all of that and to completely tarnish that area um of minnesota just simply for profit for monetary gain and so the summer of 2019 I drove to northern Minnesota and I had the opportunity to in person sit and, you know, have conversations with these activists and organizers. Um, and I also had the opportunity to speak with youth organizers in Minnesota um, who are plugged into other grassroots movements and really just explore the issue of the Line 3 pipeline. 
And then the second part of the documentary goes is focused on a Latinx community in uh, inner city Chicago. With that part, with that segment, I uh, was able to meet with a grassroots organization in that uh, community um, called El Viejo. And they have for years been fighting pollution and public health issues in inner city Chicago in terms of the fact that because they're a Latinx community, Chicago has felt that it was okay to have all the trucks pass through their community or have all the factories placed like across the street from the residential spaces wow. or to completely eradicate all the green green spaces and community spaces for the use of factories and machinery and that kind of thing. And their residents are getting cancer from these chemicals and pollutants and they're getting all these public health problems and their kids are being raised on these chemicals in their schools and all this kind of these things. And so I was able to, you know, get plugged into that community group and talk with um, the older, more established members, but also the youth community members that they're training in their grassroots ways. And so the film just really explores two very different instances of environmental injustice, but establishes common themes of how these marginalized groups are constantly facing institutionalized discrimination and resistance from these power structures, but it's just incredible how they're there time and time again at the front lines, standing up for their rights, for their people, for their futures. Yes. Wow. That's so incredible that you were able to go to these two places and share their stories. I was watching the documentary and, um, you know, how you were saying that the pipeline would run through their water source. And also too, wasn't that tribe in, they grow rice, right? So that would also affect yes. their food. Exactly. Yeah. And then with the um, Latinx community, with the pollution, all that, they, it was really affecting the children and the schools too. Mm-hmm. So it's just, so frustrating, <laughs> you know, yeah. that that communities of color are so, you know, at the back of people's minds, you know, when it comes to mm-hmm. environmental racism and, you know, just corporate pollution. It's it's awful. So what um, you know, there's only so much that we can do, of course, but What do you think is the best thing that people can do to, you know, like maybe spread the word or to try to, you know, convince corporations to, you know, stop doing this? Yeah, I would say um, what we can start off with doing is putting an incredible amount of pressure on the people in power and these organizations that continue to commit these atrocities against these communities for example, with the two specific communities that I talk about in my documentary, putting pressure on local Minnesota government with the governor of Minnesota, with, you know, local structures of power, because what people don't realize is that even though they're local, they have an incredible amount of power that affects the daily life, daily lives of people in that community. So putting pressure on them, calling their offices, sending letters, even if possible, going in person and just forcing them to have conversations. Because when you show up time and time again, have them understand that you're not going away anytime soon. Like then they're going to, you know, reciprocate and 
um, be open to having these conversations with regards to the situation in Chicago, you know, getting in contact with the local EPA offices and, you know, agents, um, speaking with Chicago politicians um, who directly have a hand in you know, which parts of the city get community green spaces, Mm -hmm. which parts of the city get, you know, more funding than others, which parts of the city have these industrial zones running through them. They all have, you know, decision power in that. So getting, you know, connected with these people, going to their offices, calling them, it's a really, it has to be a consistent fight. And that's, you know, what I said earlier, it's not something that can be a one and done you have to be in it for the long term while at the same time also what I think is important is, you know, being able to make sure that you can be there for the long term. Mm -hmm. Don't burn yourself out. Don't go, you know, completely hard for a month and then just like back out of the fight for the next six months. It's a sustained thing. And um, you have to make sure to, you know, treat yourself with care and recognize when, you can take a more active role and when you need to take a step back to, you know, recharge. Um, but because ultimately it is a long-term committed fight. Absolutely. Yes, it is. <laughs> so um, you are currently a student. So what are your goals for, you know, your education and your career? Yeah. So I'm currently a sophomore at Tulane University in New Orleans. Um, I'm getting my Bachelor of Arts in International Relations and my Bachelor of Science and Management in Finance. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, getting both this theoretical, global, political education while also learning these hard technical skills of finance. And what I hope to do and how I hope to, you know, really intersect that in education with my goals of climate action is to you know, get involved with policymaking and, you know, international politics on a global level. What I think is such a crucial aspect of the climate crisis movement is finance. You know, it really ultimately all comes down to financing and how people in power want to allocate their funds to combating this crisis or to not combating it, um, which has been the policy. Right. for you know the past however many decades, um, but I want to be able to use my financial education to you know say it is possible to invest early and now into combating the climate crisis so that we're not you know paying an exorbitant amount of money uh, fighting the effects later, and really getting involved on the international level with international policymakers. Um, and global networks. And to be able to figure that out, I think would be really cool opportunity to intersect my passions for climate action with my education. Yes. I love that you're coming at it from a different perspective because I know, or I tend to see a lot of people um, majoring like in uh, environmental um, science or something like that. But mm-hmm. I like the, you know, the perspective that you're taking from a finance perspective because at the IPC, IPCC from this past year, money was a big talk about it, yeah, you know? Right. So we know that it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of investing to build green infrastructure, especially mm-hmm. in developing countries. Right. Um, so, right. so yeah, so that's, that's so important. I absolutely love that. <laughs> Thank you. 
Yes. So is there anything else on your radar coming up? Are you working on anything? As part of this program, this dual degree program that I'm in um, at my school, I spend my entire junior year of university abroad, Mm -hmm. um, which is very cool. And um, hopefully I'll be able to spend my first semester in Quito, Ecuador. Um, I am learning Spanish, so my entire uh, study abroad year will be focused in Spanish-speaking countries. Nice. Um, so what I'm hoping with, you know, living in Quito, Ecuador for, um, you know, five, six months is to get plugged into local indigenous groups who are in the Amazon, in the Amazonian area, and who are, you know, who have these really traditional, like, systems and styles of living that... Um, honor the earth. I feel like there's so much to learn from them and the ways in which they combat these institutionalized power structures that just seek to destroy the earth for the sake of monetary gain. And yeah, I mean, Ecuador is such a beautiful country with such a beautiful, you know, environmental system and terrain. And I would, I really can't wait to, at the, um, the tail end of this year, go there um, and learn from them and hopefully be able to learn these systems and transfer them um, to, you know, the United States um, and other places of the world. Yeah. Wow. I would love to see another documentary from you about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That would be really cool. (laughs) Right. Well, this is so amazing. It's been really great talking to you and learning from you and hearing your perspective and just seeing that you are on the path to create so much change and inspire other people to do the same. Thank you. Yes. Please tell us now, what does being a sustainable brown girl mean to you? Being a sustainable brown girl to me means, I think, ultimately making space for people who look like me Mm -hmm. um, and who share the same background as me. Um, You know, just honestly, women of color in general. Um, I think oftentimes... um, we tend to get shut out of this movement because um, there are a lot of, you know, privileged individuals who get to be at the front and who are speaking the loudest and who, who have the power and the platform to amplify their voice. Um, but as, you know, a sustainable brown girl who's involved in this movement, I as I'm, you know, progressing through these roles and, you know, getting access to more of these spaces, my goal is to, you know, create this this channel through which more women of color, more brown girls can get involved and get access to these um, spaces and communities where they can implement change. Um, Because there's so many of us who have such brilliant ideas and who have such passion and commitment um, to creating uh, a better world and making um, our communities a better space for for um, everyone living in it currently and for the people who you know will inhabit it in the future. Um, and I think first and foremost, um, my role as a sustainable brown girl is to um, create more space for others who are like me. Yes, yes, and you are definitely doing that. <laughs> So thank you so much for joining us today. And please let everyone know where they can find you online and how they can support you. 
Yeah. So um, we can find me online on Instagram. Um, my handle is at Anya Sastry. Um, and if you would like to watch the documentary that I made, my website is anyasastry.com and you can do the slash frontliners to go straight to the documentary. Um, I, it would be amazing if you would watch it. Um, and yeah, that's where you can find me online. Um, thank you so much for having me. It was so nice to sit down and chat and discuss. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. So please go follow Anya. Go watch her documentary. It's really great eye-opening and you'll learn a lot. So thanks again. Thank you. If you want to keep the conversation going, follow us at Sustainable Brown Girl on Instagram and Facebook. Check out the website at sustainablebrowngirl.com and send any questions, comments, or topic ideas to podcast at sustainablebrowngirl.com. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Donate to Patreon if you can, and be sure to watch the full video interview on YouTube. Until next time, let's continue to make better choices for the health of our bodies and the planet. Thanks for listening.